September 1999, Venice, Italy. The 56th annual Venice International Film Festival is in full swing. Venice, it's the biggest film festival that isn't Cannes. Movie makers and movie lovers from around the world have gathered to catch a first glimpse of new films from auteurs like Jane Campion, Zhang Yimou, Spike Jones, and the maverick American director David Fincher, who has managed to finish his new film Fight Club just in time for a midnight screening on the second to last day of the festival. Not counting test screenings, this is the first time the movie has been seen in public. How did it go, you ask? Well, let's start on a high note. That joke will be funny a few seconds from now with the guys who seem to have enjoyed this screening the most. For some reason or not, we thought it'd be a good idea to smoke a joint. Signore e signori, Brad Pitt. Reminiscing years later in an interview with Mark Marin. They put you up in a balcony. You sit yeah. next to the, the guy who runs the festival. It's, right. You know, everyone's looking at you. They, they clap. You sit down. It's yeah. very formal. Yeah. And then the movie starts. And uh, <laughs> first joke comes up, and, and it's just it's crickets. It's dead silence. And, and another joke, and it's just, it's dead silent. Oh, no. And this thing is not translating. You know, it's right, in subtitles. Right. It yeah. is not translating <laughs> at all. And the more that happened, the funnier it got to Edward and I. So, yeah, Edward Norton's there. So are Helen and Bonham Carter and David Fincher. But as far as we know, Brad and Ed are the only people from Team Fight Club who show up just super blazed. And we just start laughing. So we're the assholes in the back laughing at our own jokes. Right. The only ones. And then at some point, it gets to the Helena Bonham Carter's line when she says, I haven't been fucked like that since grade school. <laughs> and I watched the festival guy who had been squirming, yeah. you know, the whole 30 minutes. Yeah. Just get up and he leaves. He doesn't say, he doesn't say a word. He just gets up and leaves. That was which that. makes us laugh. Even more so. <laughs> That's beautiful. Oh, we had a good time. Everyone involved with Fight Club knew all along that the movie they were making wasn't going to be for everybody. But the reaction at the Palazzo del Cinema that night is the first indication of just how many people this movie will not be for. From Higher Ground, this is The Big Hit Show. I'm Alex Papadimus. Like so many iconic cult films, from Rocky Horror to The Big Lebowski, Fight Club bombed in theaters but went on to find its audience and make new converts year after year. It was a super rewatchable movie that landed on home video as a two-disc deluxe edition at the dawn of the DVD age. But that wasn't the only reason it caught on. In this episode, we're talking about two verdicts. The opening weekend and the judgment of history. We'll look at how Fight Club channeled the political discontents of its moment, and we'll explore a few of the many arguments people have made over the last 20 years about this highly contentious cult classic and its take on modern men. Chapter 4, DVD Extras. Fight Club is released in the U.S. on October 15, 1999. That same day, Rosie O'Donnell 
daytime television's so-called Queen of Nice, decides to tell everyone watching her nationally syndicated talk show that she has just seen Fight Club and hated it. So much so that on the show, she gives away the big twist about Tyler Durden and the narrator, so as to dissuade people from going to see the movie. Here's Brad Pitt and Edward Norton on the DVD commentary. He was saying this movie disturbed me. I could not sleep for nights. It is. It 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 hit a nerve. It struck some nerve, whether she wanted to look at it or not. And that's what I think. Yeah, yeah, but the deal was she gave away the ending on national television. Yeah, I know. It's just it's just unforgivable. The spoiler part is historically noteworthy because this was before the internet made giant movie spoilers commonplace and something you had to actively avoid. But what's really noteworthy is that Rosie spoiled the movie because she thought it was that bad. And look, it would honestly have been weirder if Rosie O'Donnell had liked this movie. But it wasn't just people committed to the cause of niceness who hated Fight Club. A lot of actual movie critics hated it too. It wasn't universally panned. It got good reviews, weirdly, in mainstream publications like Time and Newsweek. But those were exceptions. And the critics who hated it really, really fucking hated it. New York Magazine's Peter Rayner called it a cynical exercise in designer existentialism, adding, quote, Fight Club rolls out its indictments and its zen koans, but what it really resembles, perhaps unknowingly, is the squall of a whiny and essentially white male generation that feels ruined by the privileges of women and a booming economy. Entertainment Weekly's Lisa Schwartzbaum called it a dumb and brutal shock show. If this movie is supposed to be funny, she wrote, then the joke's on us. And Roger Ebert called it, quote, the most frankly and cheerfully fascist big star movie since Death Wish. The critical beatdown had started way back in September after the first press screening in Venice. What I find problematic is not the violence, but the presentation of the violence. Writer and critic Patrick Z. McGavin was covering the festival for The Hollywood Reporter and filed one of the very first negative reviews of Fight Club. Like Ebert, Patrick also used the word fascist in the first sentence of his review, which went on to call Fight Club fascinating, though hypocritical, impeccably made, yet coercive and unrelenting. The way I start that piece, um, perhaps it was a little bit of a bomb-throwing way, you know, a kind of clear-the-deck kind of, of argument, but, um, but I stand by it because I think it is, I think the film has moments of greatness, but I think a lot of it is incoherent, and I think the final third, quite frankly, is just more or less ridiculous. Patrick watched the movie again before we talked and says he feels the exact same way about it 20-plus years later. I think the satire and the satirical portrait of late 20th century capitalism as it connects to a kind of defeated masculinity I thought was really interesting. But I felt like the film becomes very confused about what, about what it wants to say and what it wants to think. And too often the film, it endorses brutality and, and kind of a fascist impulse as a form of, you know, alienation and nonconformity. And, I, and that's just, to me, a very just dead wrong approach to this material. Needless to say, especially in 1999, when there was no social media and you had to read reviews in magazines and newspapers to find out what the buzz was on a movie, none of this was good news for Fight Club at the box office. We got leveled by the press on the picture. This is former 20th Century Fox studio head Bill Mechanic. 
In our previous episode, Bill talked about the advanced legwork he did in Washington, D.C. to keep politicians from coming after Fight Club and 20th Century Fox in the wake of the Columbine Massacre. I sent our lobbyists in there. I held screenings in, in Washington because I didn't want the film misrepresented, but what I didn't count on was the newspapers and trade papers. Right, you're expecting maybe to hear about it from certain corners, but the critics did not come to your aid in that moment either. No, they pissed on us. It was worse. And I, I think that killed us because you needed, we needed help. We needed somebody to explain it's way different than what the title is. So we made a good movie, but we weren't gonna make money. I didn't think we'd fail as badly as we did. The weekend it opened, Fight Club was the number one movie in America, which makes it sound way more successful than it actually was. Nine million dollars first weekend, and I think we totaled 39 or something like that. So that's pretty like, wow. <gasps> Choked, died. Fight Club actually made just over $11 million that first weekend and grossed $37 million domestically, which, for a movie that cost around $65 million to make, is not great. When he was running Fox, Bill's boss was the owner of the company, Rupert Murdoch. Murdoch absolutely hated Fight Club. And within eight months, Bill was fired. But not, he says, because of Fight Club. I think it was a contributing factor. I don't think it was the biggest factor. Bill was the exec who two years earlier had delivered Titanic, still one of the highest grossing movies of all time. But Fox had hit a dry spell since then, and his relationship with Murdoch had long since deteriorated. By that time, we'd sit in meetings and I would face each other. So we were done. I just was, at that stage, too successful, I thought, to shit can. But billionaires have different rules. If there's one project that actually got Bill fired, by the way, he says it was the first X-Men movie. It was, you know, the final straw. X-Men opened three weeks after Bill got fired. It went on to make almost 300 million bucks and paved the way for many, many other big-budget superhero movies. They thought I was nuts for making a Marvel film. Now you can't see anything except for Marvel. But that's, you know, showbiz. And so is what happened with Fight Club. I always thought it would, we would find our audience, we just wouldn't find it theatrically. One thing Fight Club had going for it, it came out on home video at the dawn of the DVD age. If you were any kind of movie fanatic, the advent of DVD was a moment. Suddenly, you could watch movies at home and they actually looked and sounded like movies. The format opened up a huge new revenue stream for Hollywood, which lasted basically until Netflix became a streaming service and stopped mailing out red envelopes. And until streaming came along and kneecapped the market for physical media, studios were willing to actually spend money producing DVD special features. The best DVDs were like going to film school. The two-disc special edition of Fight Club, overseen by David Fincher, became one of those DVDs you had to own the minute you had something to play it on. The DVD came out in June of 2000, just under eight months after Fight Club's disappointing theatrical debut. According to Bill Mechanic, it sold so many copies so quickly that, with help from overseas box office revenue, Fight Club was actually profitable by the time the first anniversary of its release rolled around. But DVD didn't just change Fight Club's financial legacy. It changed its cultural legacy. 
It became one of those movies people wanted to unpack and decode and have message board conversations about. One cornerstone of a puzzle box canon that would grow to include Donnie Darko, the TV show Lost, and the films of Christopher Nolan. If you were the right age, and beginning to suspect that capitalist society was a hamster wheel of bullshit, this was the DVD for you. Um, can you tell us your Fight Club story, the story of the first time you saw this film? Fight Club was the first DVD I ever rented and saw, and I think I must have gotten it at Blockbuster. Writer and podcaster Molly Lambert. Molly was in high school when she watched Fight Club for the first time and says she knew very little about it going in. She was vaguely aware that it was based on a book by Chuck Palahniuk and that it had flopped at the box office. That was all she knew. And I believe my family was out of town for a basketball tournament with my brother. And so I believe I was home alone for like maybe the first time ever. And I decided to make myself a cocktail. And I made what I thought was a Bloody Mary, but it was just V8 and vodka. Um, And then I got drunk alone for the first and last time ever and watched Fight Club. (laughs) Blew my mind. I loved it. I was like a little, you know, anti-capitalist. I don't think I quite fully understood what I hated so much about everything. And this movie really put it into frame for me of like, wait, I also hate buying stuff, (laughs) thinking about who I am in terms of stuff that I buy. I did make my parents the most like concerned they've ever been still when I said one time when we were driving somewhere, I said, man, I'd really love to blow up Beverly Hills. <laughs> Wouldn't that be satisfying to watch just all, you know, no one's in the buildings, just just blow up the buildings as like a symbolic gesture. My parents were like, oh my God, <laughs> don't do that. No, don't say that. And I was like, guys, you need to see a little movie called Fight Club. As Fight Club caught on through home video, the movie's place in the larger narrative of 1999 in film became clearer. There's never one single cohesive story about what happened in movies in a particular year, but it's striking how many of 1999's biggest movies seem to hit on the same theme. Reductively speaking, here goes. Fight Club is about how capitalism is bullshit. Office Space is about how work is bullshit. Election is about how electoral politics are bullshit. Three Kings is about how the first Gulf War was bullshit. American Beauty is about how the suburbs and the nuclear family and traditional masculinity are bullshit. The Blair Witch Project is an act of cinematic bullshitting that demonstrates how the objective truth supposedly conveyed by documentary film can be faked and is therefore bullshit. And The Matrix asks the question, what if reality, literally everything we know, is bullshit? That was a big fear in the 90s or the idea that somehow advertising was this enemy to the people because it was essentially commercializing everything and turning everything into a pure commodity. Chuck Klosterman is a writer whose most recent book is called The 90s, a book. Fight Club has this idea sort of that, like, what, how your life is supposed to be is bullshit. That, that, that what you've been told is the right way to live is fake. Um, I wonder if this idea of that these movies that seem to suggest everything is inauthentic and fake um, are in a way saying, but it does not have to be. 
there might be another way to go about this. And these films are sort of showing like these kind of potential paths. And I think, though, as we look back on that, all the paths seem equally flawed. That, in truth, the desire to actually be alive is hopeless. That none of us are alive. (laughs) But in Fight Club, that bar basement where the Fight Club meets is a portal to a different reality. It's a space that literally has its own rules. And going down there is how the characters begin to live by a completely different set of values. Commercial products and the accumulation of wealth and um, sort of the, the comfort of life, that's what you're told to want. But then you can go through this door and go down these stairs, and this is where people are actually alive. This is what makes Fight Club a fantasy, right? Like a lot of these late 90s films, it's about a character waking up to the falseness of his reality. Tyler Durden's whole sales pitch is about the huge disconnect between the life we're promised by television and media, which imply that we're all going to grow up to be millionaires and movie gods and rock stars, and the plotting, stunted real life most of us actually get. The narrator realizes that he's working his bullshit job in order to purchase a fake existence. But, and this is the important part, he also discovers there's something he can do about it. When Fight Club finally connects with an audience and sells all those DVDs, this has to be part of the reason why. It lets people imagine finding a more visceral and authentic alternative to a life of disempowered consumerism. And at the end of the 90s, a lot of people were thinking about the same thing, and about how to bring about a world in which corporate overlords don't determine what we can do with our freedom. What these protesters are saying is that while there's globalization, while trade is expanding around the world, that's happening without due regard to the environment, and without due regard to the poor. In real life, in the very same historical moment as Fight Club, we're talking one month after the movie came out, people, and not just men, really did rise up. At the WTO protests in Seattle in November 1999, we got a glimpse of what a Project Mayhem-style revolt against capitalism might actually look like. There's this sense that the power was no longer in governments. The power was in corporations, in brands, and that this hadn't been challenged. This is Leslie Wood. She's a sociology professor at York University and author of the book Direct Action, Deliberation and Diffusion, Collective Action After the WTO Protests in Seattle. You have the end of the Cold War at the end of the 80s and the idea that there is no alternative. It's just going to be capitalism and global capitalism, and it's heading towards a world where corporations are going to be in control. When deep space exploration ramps up, it'll be the corporations that name everything. The IBM Stellar Sphere, the Microsoft Galaxy, Planet Starbucks. Protest had started to feel really inadequate. You needed to go direct. Uh, and so there was this real kind of revitalization or this like maybe romantic uh, idea that you should just be a spanner in the works. Four years after its formation, the World Trade Organization convened in Seattle and more than 40,000 protesters were there to meet them. So the World Trade Organization was intended to create like almost like a corporate UN uh, that would make decisions about the global economy And corporations were lobbying like mad and were getting quite a lot of seats at the table. 
These days, if you hear somebody railing against globalization, chances are they're about to accuse George Soros of funding Antifa or something wild and conspiratorial along those lines. But in 1999, the coalition that demonstrated against the WTO was noteworthy for its ideological diversity, much like Fight Club's fanbase. Labor unions and environmentalists, lawyers and anarchists, indigenous activists, and members of local bands, like Soundgarden and Nirvana. Arch-conservative commentator Pat Buchanan didn't actually show up to bang on a bucket, but he spoke in support of the protests. That's how big the tent was. Pat Buchanan and street theater hippies manipulating giant puppets were on the same team. It's about their future being traded off by corporations who frankly don't give a shit what happens to them. That's what it's about. That's what people are fed up with. And so this brought together people who cared about the environment, who cared about labor, who cared about culture, who cared about indigenous rights, migration, all these things. And so there had been some kind of discussions about how do we, how do we go and make a real impact on what happens there. And the idea is you do whatever it takes to shut it down. On November 30th, the day the conference was set to begin, activists took to the streets. Some of them were anarchists armed with crowbars and slingshots and spray paint. And like Tyler and his minions in the movie, they deliberately attacked symbols of the corporatization of everyday life. Chains like Nike Town, Starbucks, McDonald's, and The Gap. But the majority of the demonstrators took action in less cathartic and destructive ways. They chained themselves together, locked themselves to stationary objects, sat down in busy intersections, and brought Seattle to a standstill, successfully preventing visiting delegates from making it to the summit. And this created this massive panic, um, both by police and by local authorities. They ended up calling in the National Guard. Move back! Back off! What the fuck? <laughs> and the police turned to the use of what's now more standard, but a real, real sea change in how they police protests in North America, use of pepper spray and tear gas and less lethal weapons on a, like a scale that we hadn't seen in Canada and the U.S. for a very, very, well, it, probably ever. Police almost lost control of the area around the World Trade Organization summit. Only tough tactics and the use of pepper spray canisters dispersed rioters and brought the looting to an end. One police uh, strategist at the time said it was the Pearl Harbor of American protest policing. At the end of this, the police chief resigns, the mayor's in trouble, and the World Trade Organization actually never regains its footing. The summit ended after four days without addressing most of the items on its agenda because many attendees couldn't physically get to the negotiating table. And the model spreads around the world as something that you could actually do that could you could win, which didn't, you know, doesn't happen all the time when it comes to, to popular movements. When labor and student and environmentalists and human rights activists stand together, we can and did shut down the WTO. The so-called battle in Seattle opened a window of possibility. For at least a moment, even an all-consuming force like capital with government and police on its side proved no match for an inclusive coalition determined to resist it. That sense of possibility is one thing you don't get from the fictional uprising in Fight Club. Tyler's dream is a world where modernity is toppled and everybody gets to play Last of the Mohicans in the wreckage of a dead mall. But 
that's it. There's no plan for after that. It's a dystopian vision, and protest is ultimately utopian. It's born out of the belief that things can be better than they are. The feelings Fight Club was tapping into were real enough to move people to brave tear gas and rubber bullets on the streets of Seattle. But Fight Club's story of resistance ends up in a dark, nihilistic place. The reason for that? You guessed it. It's men. More than a few actors were considered for the part of Marla Singer in Fight Club. Courtney Love was on the list for a while. Also in the mix was another 90s icon, Janine Garofalo. 20th Century Fox is said to have wanted somebody bigger. Their pick was, wait for it, Reese Witherspoon. But after watching the 1997 romantic drama The Wings of the Dove on Brad Pitt's recommendation, David Fincher wanted to cast Helena Bonham Carter. Here she is talking to not yet poster boy for toxic masculinity, Charlie Rose, in 1998. What's the new movie with Brad Pitt and Edward Norton? It's um, a film uh, called Fight Club, and it's um, somewhat dark. No one's been able to describe it, but we've all been supplied with a soundbite, which is, um, it's a heartwarming tale about two young men who start an amateur boxing club. And (laughs) the woman who comes between them, and I'm the woman who comes between them. Bonham Carter was best known back then for extremely British period movies based on extremely British novels, like Howard's End and A Room with a View. She's talked about feeling typecast in her early work, and Fight Club was certainly a different look. But when Fincher sent her the script, she wasn't sure about it and booked a meeting with Fincher, quote, to ascertain that he wasn't a complete misogynist. I don't think that's true of Fincher, but you can see why Bonham Carter wanted to take that meeting and make sure. I'm going to grab that little bitch Marla Singer and scream. Marla, you liar! Most of Fincher's films are about men, and a lot of them, like The Social Network, Gone Girl, and The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, hinge on male characters who resent, fear, or hate women. But they're hardly celebrations of that kind of masculinity. If you watch The Social Network and you're like, this movie's saying Mark Zuckerberg rules, you know, (laughs) like... I don't think any Fincher movie ever says this guy is cool. I think Fincher movies are all about, like, being an adult man is a lie, where you pretend to be a cool guy, but secretly you're like a little pussy baby inside. It's what the game is about. It's what Seven is about. It's what Zodiac is about. This, once again, is writer Molly Lambert. Molly is in this show because around the time we first started working on it, I ran into her at the park and told her I was writing a show about Fight Club. And when I made some joke like, finally, a podcast for men, Molly started arguing with me about how Fight Club isn't really a bro movie. And I told her to say what she was saying and say it in the show instead. I didn't think, oh, this is a movie for men about men. I thought this is a movie about people. I'm a person. You didn't feel like, oh, like the character that's for me here is Marla. And if I don't like Marla, I'm not going to buy into this movie. No, not at all. And I never feel that way about movies. And I think that women and non-binary people and other people, it's like everything is centered around straight men in culture. So you learn to cross-identify like early on. You learn to be able to be like, that's me. I'm the straight guy in this story who's the main guy. The Marla character... I know people who love that character, but yeah, I wasn't like, I don't know, I related more to the Ed Norton character. He's the main guy. He's player one. 
There are presumably a lot of fans like Molly in Fight Club's fanbase. You do not have to be a cisgender man to see your own situation reflected in a movie like this. But if you are a cisgender man and you're inclined to see this as a movie about how modern society is keeping you and your bros from being the cool guys you know you can be, Fight Club will reflect that back to you too. Fight Club supports and undercuts any argument you can make about it. It's this ever-shifting cloud of unsettled and unsettling ideas. The movie's defiance of any straightforward reading is probably the reason it went from being a flop to a late-breaking hit, and also the reason that we're still talking about it to this day. Unlike a lot of those big 1999 films, most of which seem far more comprehensible and, in retrospect, way less interesting. We're about to hear a series of equally valid arguments about Fight Club that contradict each other. The next generation of young men were promised a world in which they would be useful players, in which they'd have something to contribute, and by contributing, they'd become men. That's the journalist Susan Faludi. In October 1999, the same month Fight Club opened in theaters, she published a book called Stiffed, The Betrayal of the American Man. Faludi spent six years interviewing many, many different kinds of men. Downsized workers, an astronaut, porn stars, and even Sylvester Stallone. And in the book, she comes to the conclusion that late 90s men are not okay, because the way society has evolved in the second half of the 20th century means men can no longer define themselves the way previous generations of men did, through service, bravery in war, community, and meaningful work. A profound cultural change has occurred in our lifetime. We're passing from a utilitarian society where people's public service is needed and sometimes even valued, to a consumer-driven, celebrity-saturated culture where people's credit cards, display value, sex appeal, and marketable fame sometimes seem to be all that's recognized. The force of this new culture's dictates has altered profoundly what it means to be a man. And many of Faludi's subjects feel unfulfilled and resentful as a result of that change. If Faludi's argument sounds a lot like what Tyler Durden is saying in Fight Club about his followers being the neglected middle children of history and self-improvement being masturbatory, well, it won't surprise you that Faludi wrote a glowing review of Fight Club the movie and Chuck Palahniuk praised Stift as a kind of non-fiction corollary to his book. Faludi and Palahniuk's books were both praised for diagnosing a problem. In their view, it was the end of the American century, and men were feeling not just lost but abandoned almost wounded by change in a way they'd never felt before. But not everybody buys that argument. I think she lost her feminist bearings when she was working on that book. This is Sally Robinson. She's a professor at Texas A&M University and an affiliate of their Women's and Gender Studies program. I think all the crises in white masculinity throughout American history are manufactured crises. (laughs) I like the word manufactured because they serve certain purposes. Sally's thought a lot about Fight Club, and she's written about how it echoes Susan Faludi's ideas about where men found themselves at the end of the 90s. That's her argument, that these men don't have connect they don't have they don't have a great war they are no longer connected to the production of american goods they're working in service industries they are doing things that women do and there's just this sort of sense that this traditional provider protector 
masculinity is is somehow you know destroyed uh and it's it's never clear who exactly is doing the destroying <laughs> of of that because it is also of course the case that white men have remained in power through all of these cycles Faludi and to some extent Chuck Palahniuk are saying that this supposed crisis of masculinity is a late 90s post-industrial kind of thing Sally has written about Fight Club as part of a long tradition of novels in which mostly male writers fret about a world in which men can no longer be men. A tradition going back to at least the 1960s, which also happened to be the dawn of, dun-dun-dun, modern feminism. Which, broadly speaking, challenged the notion that men were the real and rightful protagonists of society. And the very idea of that caused men to feel left behind, marginalized, and even victimized. Sally's issue with Fight Club's portrayal of disempowered men getting back in touch with their authentic selves is that it's based on an utterly gendered notion of authenticity. It's about consumerism being inherently feminizing and therefore bad for men. Authenticity equals masculinity, and femininity equals inauthenticity. Do you know what a duvet is? Comfort. It's a blanket. Just a blanket. Now, why do guys like you and I know what a duvet is? Is this essential to our survival? In the hunter-gatherer sense of the word? No. What are we then? Consumers. Right. We are consumers. We are byproducts of a lifestyle obsession. Tyler Durden, you know, spouts all these sort of lines about, you know we are not the stuff we own or the stuff we own owns us. And, you know, these sort of pretty typical anti-consumerist kinds of lines. But it wouldn't necessarily be linked to feminization if it weren't for the fact that the narrator needs a fix, right? And what that fix is, of course, is Fight Club, right? Which I don't think anybody would read as anything other than a reassertion of masculinity. We're a generation of men raised by women. I'm wondering if another woman is really the answer we need. But as Molly Lambert points out, there is another big aspect of Fight Club that makes it hard to read as an unequivocal or unironic celebration of traditional masculinity. Fight Club's a movie about being a loser guy, an incel, who wants to be a cool guy, and the cool guy's Brad Pitt. And it's so unbelievably gay that it's also like, I can't imagine watching this movie and not picking up on how queer it is. Was that apparent to you at 16? Yes, of course. That's why I watched it three times. Because I was like, I, too, want to be in a love triangle over Brad Pitt. Like, that's what this movie's about. It's like, the love triangle isn't about who gets Helena Bonham Carter. It's about who gets Brad Pitt. It's Ed Norton and Helena Bonham Carter fighting over Brad Pitt. It's an MMF threesome movie. It's incredibly uh, not straight. The great irony of Fight Club's ascent into the pantheon of movies beloved by broy straight guys is that Fight Club, the book, was written by a gay man, Chuck Palahniuk. And its perspective on quote-unquote traditional masculinity is presumably Chuck's perspective. 
Polnick was not out when Fight Club was first published, and chances are if he had been, the book, and particularly scenes like Tyler and the narrator's encounter on a nude beach, would inevitably have been read through that lens. But the crazy thing about Fight Club the movie is that it doesn't tone down the book's queer subtext at all. If anything, it's knowingly and teasingly toned up. Three pictures of beer and you still can't ask. What? You called me because you need a place to stay. Oh, hey, hey, no, no, no. Yes, you I, did. I mean... So just ask. Cut the foreplay and just ask, man. Would, would that be a problem? Is it a problem for you to ask? Can I stay at your place? Yeah. Thanks. I want you to do me a favor. Yeah, sure. And presumably you've seen the movie, so you know he's going to ask the narrator to hit him as hard as he can. But if you hadn't seen the movie, and I told you this was a scene about a guy working up the courage to ask his more uninhibited new friend if he wants to make out, you would probably believe me. And when Fincher cuts away from that first fight to its aftermath, Brad Pitt and Ed Norton are sharing a bottle of beer and Brad smoking a cigarette. It's Fight Club's version of that cliché cut to two people smoking in bed that's supposed to indicate that they've just rocked each other's worlds. The homoeroticism was always very evident to me. This is David Reddish. He's the entertainment editor at the LGBTQ news site Queerty. It's about a man really wrestling with his own identity, with his own feelings, and perhaps most importantly, with his place in a society. I look at it, and, and I think a, a queer audience certainly looks at it, as a man who is attracted to other men and is terrified of what that means for his masculine identity. And so he creates this alternate persona in his mind that is the perfect man who he kind of lusts after to sort of become the avatar for everything he wished he was. These two personalities begin to compete in his mind, and... They start to also fight with other men, physically fight with other men, because in his own sort of, you know, really messed up way, he's trying to cure himself of his same-sex desire. There are some movies that try so hard to be about manly men doing manly things that they end up trying too hard and tip over into homoeroticism inadvertently. Fight Club is a different story. I mean, it's David Fincher, a detail-oriented filmmaker if ever one there was. Everything in it is there on purpose. Long before the movie shows us Tyler and the narrator settling into cozy domestic partnership, the narrator straightening Tyler's tie as they sip coffee and head off to work, it feels like the movie is actively encouraging us to see this as a barely-coded love story. I'm thinking about the first scene where they're in the basement and they have the first Fight Club and, and Brad's giving us the rules of Fight Club. Like, the, the way that scene is shot, they're going into, like, this, this basement, this cellar. In 1999, if you were going to go to a gay after-hours party or a gay sex club, that was very much what it was like. The narrator is, he finds a room that has been used as the Fight Club venue and he can still smell the sweat and the blood and he feels it on the floor. There is a very sensuous feeling when you're going into a sexual space like that. So it's hard not to see that if you know what you're looking for and you're familiar with that community. It's, it, you know, it's completely visible. Reddish grew up in a small town outside of Chicago. He saw Fight Club for the first time during college in the early 2000s, 
and says he didn't necessarily pick up on the specific aspects of gay life that the movie was playing with. What I did recognize was that these were men who did not know how to communicate their feelings of insecurity or affection or attraction or fear to one another. So they just had to beat each other up. Certainly for people of my generation, being gay, being LGBTQ was about the worst thing imaginable. So, so rather than have these guys impugn their own masculinity by having people suspect they might be gay, I'm gonna beat the living crap out of this guy because that is the only way I know how to connect with another man without being insecure. Reading Fight Club as David Reddish sees it, as a story about sublimated queer desire, complicates Sally's critique of it as a story stuck in outdated masculine and feminine binaries, which in turn complicates Molly's idea of it as a movie in which anyone living in capitalist society can see themselves. And then you've got all these late 90s film critics who saw it as fascist, even though it's about overthrowing authority. The first rule of Fight Club discourse is that there's always something to fight about. What's inarguable is that this 1999 movie continues to speak to the present moment in ways that Chuck Palahniuk and David Fincher couldn't have imagined. In terms of our sort of capitalist society, Fight Club is very prophetic in the sense that I think it's a film that really foresaw where the middle class has been completely eroded, where obviously small town America is decaying, and where this entire population of men that because of the breakdown of traditions, what have you, when you are raised to think you are automatically going to have a role and then, you know, the joke is actually you're going to have to figure it out for yourself. That's that's a pretty frightening realization for a lot of people to make. And so I think that's part of why we see extremism rising in our society. I don't know that that Fincher or Fallon Duck really saw where we would be at this point in our history, but they sensed that these forces were there and what could happen if they did combine with one another. Whether this was intentional or not, Fight Club now plays like a warning about what happens when traditional community falls away and lonely men go looking for it in all the wrong places. I think that a film like Fight Club also raises the question of, in the case of domestic terrorists, these men have no purpose in their lives. They see a certain level of wish fulfillment in the idea of this charismatic, unapologetic leader showing up and saying, I'm going to give you purpose in your life, and you are going to be as cool as you always thought you would be. You just have to do what I say. And if that statement doesn't scare you, I think it really should. In our next episode, we'll explore what makes a man start a fight club. I think there was a real release and catharsis in these basements where these fights happened. We'll talk about why even men find it difficult to discuss masculinity. I asked them what's hard about being a man, and every man (laughs) looked at me like I'd ask them if unicorns can swim. And we'll delve into the dark realities of domestic terrorism, some of which will sound awfully familiar. Does Fight Club seem to you like an accurate depiction of the way an extremist movement works? Yes. In the broad strokes, at least. Absolutely. From Higher Ground, this is The Big Hit Show. It's written and hosted by me, Alex Papadimus, and produced by Western Sound. Colin McNulty is our showrunner. Producers are Sabrina Fang and Taylor Jones. Our production assistant is Stella Hartman. 
Alex McInnes is our composer, sound designer, and mix engineer. Savannah Wright is our fact checker. Theme music by Dan Leone. The executive producer is Ben Adair. Our editor is Jamie York. Executive producers for Higher Ground are Dan Fearman, Anna Holmes, Mukta Mohan, and Janae Marable. Jenna Levin is our editorial assistant. Executive producers for Spotify are Daniel Eck, Don Ostroff, Julie McNamara, and Corinne Gilliard. Special thanks to Joe Paulson and Eric Spiegelman.